0: to do what only he can do and that's to transform us by the, by the teaching of his word. God, <clears throat> thanks so much for all that you're doing uh, even this morning coming and worshiping with you uh, that we can come here and worship in freedom. God, I, I pray for us this morning. I pray that the gospel would be proclaimed in such a way that it would draw men and women uh, to yourself. God, I pray for that for all the churches in this area. I pray f- for Jerusalem uh, right now as they preach your word. I pray for um the lighthouse church I, I pray for redeemer presbyterian church I, I, I pray for new vision god i pray for all the churches that stand on the gospel of jesus christ that this morning that your gospel throughout this city would be proclaimed in a mighty way in such a way that would draw men and women to you god i, I pray for our city god i pray that a revival would start in our city that many people would come to know you and trust you and out of this small city here in Tennessee, that this state would come to know you more and more, and then our country, God. Uh, We are desperate for you. Uh, Just like what we're going to be talking about this morning, God, we need you to fight for us more than we need to fight. God, we need you, uh, the God Almighty, to fight for our country, and so I pray for that for us um, and for this city, for the state, uh, for the U.S. and around the world, that many people this morning would surrender their will and their life over to your care. I pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. We're in Nehemiah chapter 4. If you've been with us, we've been studying through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is this great man, a great leader, a great servant of God. And what Nehemiah did, uh, if you were with us in week one, Nehemiah's heart broke because his people had been taken into exile and they had no place to worship and so God uh, sent a message to nehemiah and in that message it said that his people had been displaced and that they had no place to worship nehemiah's heart fell open and broke before the lord and the lord used that in a powerful way to send nehemiah back to jerusalem to rebuild the walls uh, and we've been talking about this rebuilding that god is the god who rebuilds that's the series title we have a god that rebuilds and the uniqueness of that is that God wants to use us in particular to be part of that rebuilding process. We'll call it redemption. He wants to use us to help redeem the world. He wants to use Powell's Chapel to help redeem Walter Hill and therefore redeem Murfreesboro, to redeem Nashville, to redeem this state, to redeem uh, the, the country, to hopefully to redeem the world. My prayer this week has been that God would bring children at VBS and that Children would come to surrender their will and their life over to God's care, and that God would use this week to send them all over uh, the world to, to preach the gospel, and that it would start here at VBS. And here we are in Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 3, we looked last week, that Nehemiah has begun to rebuild the walls. Uh, scholars say it's about three to four weeks into the rebuilding process of this two-mile circumference wall, and all of a sudden, here comes the discouragement. Here's the thing that we know. When God calls us to something as people, there will always be conflict. There will always be discouragement. I know that's not something we want to start off with this morning. You're not going to find that on a Hallmark card. You're not going to go to Kroger or Publix and say, oh, welcome to discouragement. You're going to give that card out. But that's true when we come to the church when we come to know Christ there will always be discouragement and the encouragement in the discouragement is that must mean we're doing something for the Lord so here Nehemiah is in Nehemiah chapter 4 all of a sudden the weight of the discouragement hits the people and so we're going to look at the confidence of this servant that's the title of the, of the message uh, the title of the message is the confidence of a servant because there is a God who fights for us Nehemiah understood that it, it just because the discouragement came he still had a God that would fight with him and for him and so this morning we're going to look at several things in Nehemiah chapter 4. The first one is this. Conflict is inevitable. And so even for us as we gear up for VBS, conflict is inevitable. And so if you're hoping to come to church and get out of conflict, the doors are in the back, just go ahead and leave now. There will be conflict for us as believers. That's a promise from the Lord. If God's Son, the most righteous, holy, sinless man to ever walk the planet, face conflict, the promise is we'll face conflict if we're serving the Lord. And so what does that look like? The conflict comes from the outside. We'll see six things that Sennacherib and Tobiah said to discourage the people. We see that in chapter, one, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 one and 3. Now, Sambayat heard that we were building the walls, that, that the enemies of God had begun to see the work of God beginning to take place. See, before the work of God, before the first stone was put on top of each other, there was no need for discouragement from the enemies because the enemies did not see the progress that God was doing through Nehemiah and the people of Nehemiah. So there was no discouragement. And now all of a sudden, there's this momentum that's beginning with the walls. That Oh no, here comes the walls, and the walls are going to separate Jerusalem from the rest of the area. And so, Sanbiah and Tobiah were these governors from outlying cities that knew if Jerusalem had got rebuilt and the people of Jerusalem began to get power, their power would decrease. And so these two men, in their own discouragement, looked for ways to discourage other people. We see six things that these men say to the people of God to discourage them. And I think it's so true for us. When discouragement comes or when conflict comes, it is always going to look like the truth. See, Satan has done that from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. He uses the truth to distort what's really true. right? Remember what Satan said in the garden. Hey, did God really say that? distorted it just enough that it still looked true, but it was totally a lie. That's what happens here in Nehemiah chapter 4, that these two men use the truths about these people to bring discouragement. I think that's so true in my own life. The times when I really face discouragement is because I begin to believe the lies that look so true. You know, someone said to me, Oh, you're, you're you're just four foot eleven. I wouldn't be too discouraged about that. I'd be like, no, not really, because I know the truth in that. But the, the the moments come when it looks so true, but it's so not, and that's what happens here. The first thing that we see that these two men do to discourage the people of God is to say these things. Let's look at the first. They ask a, a set of five questions, broken down into six responses. Really, the first thing that Simbiat says them they belittle their qualities look what he says to them he comes to the people and says to them you right he's he's angry with the people for their progress he begins to make fun of them verse one and then verse two uh, the latter half says this and he said to them in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria what are these feeble Jews doing the very first thing that we see he belittles their qualities he says to the jews look how feeble they are well they would be feeble people right that would be a true statement they would be feeble people they've been in exile for a long time and so he looks at the exterior and says hey what are these feeble people doing he begins to question their qualities next thing that we see is he derides them of their ambition he says this will they restore it for themselves right he says hey look at these feeble people that would be a true response will they restore it for themselves what what are they really doing this work for he begins to take the truth and begin to plant seeds of doubt in these people because the israelites the jewish people would have known yeah we are feeble you're right what are we really doing this for could you imagine that massive project and then all of a sudden they're about three or four weeks in and now all of a sudden their enemies become against them and they begin to question their motives, they question what they do. I wonder what the seed of doubt that was planted in the, in the Jewish people that day. Like, really? What are we really doing this for? Now how true could that be for us here at VBS? Next, and on the 10th. Like, what are we doing all this for? Why are we doing this? Like it's cost a lot of money, it's costing a lot, of, a lot of time, it's costing a lot of energy. Well, look, like, what's the point? Like, if we look back over the history of VBS for us, the, the, the numbers aren't in our favor. We don't retain a whole lot of people from VBS. It's not like we have VBS and then all these people come to Powell's Chapel. That has not been true. So we could get discouraged. Like, what, what are we really doing this for? Well, that's what was happening in this moment with the Jews. What, what are we really doing this for? I gotta need to open the top first. The next thing that we see is they begin to mock their optimism right that's when he says to them that, that idea he questions will they really make sacrifice that question is a question of hey when they're done are they really when they done, when they're done they're going to make a sacrifice back to praise for the lord and so that question is about their optimism like, are they really ever going to finish like are they really ever going to come to this place of sacrifice are they really ever going to accomplish what they've set out to accomplish because you've got to remember, several weeks prior to this moment, here's Nehemiah standing in front of the people of God and saying to the people of God, hey, we're going to rebuild this city. We're going to rebuild the walls. We're going to have a place to worship. There's going to be this rally and cry for them. They get excited, and now they're about three or four weeks in, and they think, hmm, I just don't know. And so these men begin to go after their optimism. The next thing they see is they make fun of their enthusiasm, right? They ask the question, will they finish up in a day? Well, they know that's not true. There's no way to build one wall two miles long in one day. They, they knew that. That was the truth. And again, they use the truth to bring discouragement. The they use the truth to bring conflict from within. The next thing that we see they do is they see they, they undermine their confidence, right? Their, their question is, will they revive the stones? Well, of course not. Like, that's, that's a great question with a terrible answer. Like, there's no way. A stone's already dead. You're not going to revive a stone. And so they begin to question can they really accomplish the goal? The last thing we see is this they magnify the problem out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones. Is, uh, is that? They're, they're talking about, right? They, they talk in the very last one that they burn the burn ones the burn stones the burn gates the all these things that are a heap of rubbish are the the problem is a huge problem i don't know if you've ever seen a broken down wall before but if you've ever seen a broken down wall i was driving in a thompson station yesterday and there's this huge uh, plantation and around the plantation is this uh, about a chest high wall and i looked at it and there's parts of the wall that were broken down and i thought to myself man, you've got to be a pretty talented mason to go back out there and put that wall back together. And so I I just thought, man, that, that wall will probably be in ruins for a long time. Well, here's this wall around Jerusalem that is burnt to a crisp and just completely demolished all over the place. It's not like a few rocks. It's these huge, huge rocks. They say that the wall itself was nine feet wide. Not nine feet high, nine feet wide. And so all these rocks are all over the place. And so, yeah, they magnify the problem. You know, one of the ways for us to see that is we we live in a country of about 300 million people. And most of those people are lost. We live in a world of about 7 billion people. And the majority of those people are lost. And so there is a huge problem of lost people. And so for us, we can think, man, how in the world is this one little church going to make an impact on the world? How are 50 to 60 people going to have an impact on 7 billion people? Well, that's what Satan wants to say to us. Satan wants to come to us and say to us, hey, you're, you're small, you're feeble. Yeah, we're pretty small and feeble. That's a true statement. He wants to get after our ambitions. Like, I have an ambition. I hope we as a church has an ambition to wreak havoc on lost people. That we really would be the salt and light of the world. I would sing a corny song, but y'all make fun of me and I don't want to do this. This little light of mine. Like, like, when I think of it, like, man, we got this little candle. And so all these places, Satan is going to use to us to bring discouragement to us. How come to stop the work? You see, that's what's happening here in Nehemiah just in the first three verses. These two men from outlying providences had such anger and hatred for the people of God that they knew if they could bring discouragement to the people of God that that the wall would stop being built. That's what happened in Ezra. Remember, Ezra came right before Nehemiah. And in Ezra, these men came to the people of God and distorted God's plan to rebuild the walls of worship. So they had the idea, hey, we can go and bring discouragement again. So there is always going to be conflict. When we do the work of God, there will be discouragement. Jesus Himself, you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, over and over and over again, the the Jewish leaders wanted to discourage Jesus from doing the work that He was set out to do. That was to seek and save the lost. And so what is our response? Like how does this servant Nehemiah have confidence? How do we have confidence this morning? That God has called us as a church to do an enormous task that is well beyond us. We see a few things. The first thing that we see is in verses 4 through 9. Prayer is critical. Are we a praying church? I'll speak to the leaders of the church first, myself included, deacons, you're included in that, Sunday school teachers. We, the leaders, must be prayer people. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. We've seen that since chapter 1. We see all that in chapter 2. We saw, see it again here in chapter 4. That prayer is critical from accomplishing to accomplish the work that God has called us to. A few things that we see how did this man pray how as leaders are we to pray the first one is this we must pray urgently you see nehemiah in that moment here's these men chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 they come and they begin to attack the people of god and they begin to say things and they begin to make fun of them and then all of a sudden nehemiah's response is not to defend his work nehemiah's response is not to show the people hey look at all that we've done what nehemiah's response shows us as he was a man of prayer all of a sudden he hears this and says to god oh god hear us basically he was a man of urgent prayer he did not wait to get alone he did not wait to hold a prayer service he did not wait for sunday morning service he in that moment heard the discouragement and cried out to a holy god he prayed urgently The second thing that we see is he prayed dependently. Who's he prayed to? To God. He didn't pray to any of the other gods that were out there. He didn't pray to any of the other idols. He prayed dependently on God. He knew here comes the discouragement. The only one that I have to turn to, I must dependently pray to God. The next thing he does is he prays honestly. For we are despise, He pours out His heart. I wonder how often as leaders, as people of God, we pray honestly to God. Like all those thoughts that we have in our head and then we come to God in prayer and we try to fix those thoughts, to tweak those thoughts rather than just praying them out honestly to God. God wants to know an honest heart. And so are we praying to God honestly? Here's the scary part for me. Do we pray to God? The fourth one that he does is pray to God passionately. He says to God, turn back their taunts on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in their own land where they are in captive. He pours his heart out to God. It, it's what we call in Psalms, Psalms 109 is one of these, it's, a, it's called an imprecatory psalm. That here's this man that's pouring his heart out to God. David says it this way, which I would never pray, he asked God to dash their baby's head on the rocks. I'm like, man, okay, that's a little extreme, David. But what we can see is that these men, the men of God, prayed passionately against the attack on God. Do we do that? Like, here's, the, here's Nehemiah praying passionately to God and saying to God, hey, what these men are doing to us, do it tenfold to them. Or do we try to fix it up? The last thing that we see is this. He prayed realistically. He knew really where the problem lied. It says in verse 5, do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from their sight. He was realistic that where this was coming from was their sin. And so as the people of God, as the leaders that God has called us to, are we praying urgently, dependently, honestly, passionately, and realistically to a holy God? Or does our prayer life, I'll say it this way, I'll I'll call myself out. Does does your prayer life look like your closet? It's where all the junk goes you trying to fix it up, like trying to make the exterior look good. Like You come to my, my bedroom, it looks great. You open my closet door, you're like, good gosh, what happened in there? Looks like his room threw up. That's me, that's, on, that's my closet, not Jenny's closet, that's mine. That's not on her, that's on me. But do I do that in my prayer life? Do I go to God and try to fix it all up? Or am I passionately, honestly coming to God with what's really going on? Like when I'm praying for people that I dislike, do I really pray honestly for them? Because I can pray one thing and then get done with praying and have all these wicked thoughts. I'm not the only one in the room I know. But am I praying to God that way? Do we as a people of God pray to a holy God when it comes uh, to our discouragement? Here's the deal when it comes to discouragement people are the things that bring discouragement a building I I can't stand when people say I got hurt by the church no you didn't unless you got hit upside the head with a door on the church you did not get hit by the church you got hurt by people in the church and so are we being honest about that before God oh God I'm just so upset about the church no you're really not you're upset about someone in the church You're upset about someone outside of the church that's done harm to you. Are we praying passionately to God about those things? That's the first one, the leaders. The second one is this. The workers also prayed. How did they pray? Verse 8 and 9 we see. Verse 8 and 9 says this. Did the lights just come on more? Because that freaked me out. Okay, my eyes are going weird on me. Verse 8 and 9 It says this, uh, verse 7, the very end says, they were angry and they all plotted together to come and fight uh, against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed, the people prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. The first thing that we, the people of God, this isn't just the leaders, this is all of us in the church, we must understand the necessity of prayer do we understand the necessity of prayer you see these men and these women they saw the attackers coming they saw the necessity to pray and i wonder for us at at the church if we've just gotten so comfortable that we no longer see the necessity in our prayer life i don't know if you've ever been around the world to any of the churches all over the world they understand the necessity of prayer Like for you and I here in America, we come and we come to church and we have this thought like, man, we better get out of here by 1130 because we got to get to lunch. If you've ever gone to India or China or anywhere else in the world, they're not looking at their time when they're getting out to go to lunch. They are waiting expectantly for the Lord because they are so in need of God to show up in their midst. They're not concerned about getting out of here, getting in their car and going to Moe's for burrito. They're concerned that someone might bust in the front door and take them all captive or kill them all. See, they understand the necessity of prayer. Do we here at Powell's Chapel, do we here in America understand the necessity of prayer? Here's the next thing that we see. And we see it in Nehemiah's life as well. For them, prayer was so natural. They see the discouragement, they see they need to pray, and what do they do? They go right to prayer. It's their, it's their reaction. It's like if you were to throw a ball at my head, my reaction isn't to sit here and take it off the forehead. My reaction is going to be, I'm going to react. It's natural for me to react to catch the ball. Their reaction, our natural response, when, when criticism comes, when conflict comes, must be to go to our knees. But so often, it's not to go to our knees, it's to go to fix the problem. Like, Here's the problem, therefore I've got to fix the problem. No, they understood the necessity of praying and it was so natural for them to pray to the God uh, that could fix the problem. The other thing is this, and I say this with great conviction of my own life. Look at the word they say in verse 8 and 9. It says, Verse 8, and we prayed. Circle the word we. When it comes to prayer, there must be partnership in prayer. Prayer is not an isolated, insulated activity that's for us, individually, for the believer alone. Yes, we do have our, our own ind- independent walk with the Lord, but we must have a corporate walk with the Lord. We must be unified together. And so are we praying together that was the thing for me Wednesday night to come and pray as a unified body over this church over the grounds of this church for VBS that we prayed together because we understood it was a natural response for us to see the enormity of VBS and what it will hold and so we came together because we we had a need for that we had a, a natural response to that and we did it together I love this what this writer says It's not on the screen, so I'll take my time reading it. It says this. This man says this. Life is tough at times. Amen? Or am I the only one? Life is tough at times. I wish he had said more times than not. That would have been more honest. Life is tough at times. However much we pray, its troubles can increase rather than decrease anyone ever felt that before man i'm praying i'm praying like okay god really you're going to heap more on me like give me a break already and so we pray the troubles can increase rather than decrease prayer is not a convenient device for removing life's troubles prayer is not for the removal of our problems and here's what he says but it's a It's loving God's provision for coping with them. Prayer is our coping mechanism to our problems. It's not the solution to the problem. It's how we deal with them. And so this morning, if you're in this place and there's tons of discouragement to you, I don't want to say this, but it needs to be said, there may be no light at the end of the tunnel today for you. There may no, be no light at the end of the tunnel for me and my discouragement. But that's what Satan wants to do. Satan wants to blind us to see what God is doing in the midst of our troubles so that we quit going to the source of the solution, God Himself. And so my hope and my prayer is this, that in the midst of our chaos, in the midst of our problems, in the midst of our ongoing and upgoing troubles, that we will go to God as a way to cope with them. Even if the answer today is no or wait. Someone once told me this. God is more concerned about doing a work in me than He is doing a work through me. And so, so often... Uh, Another writer, A.W. Tozer, I'll paraphrase what he says. He says, so often, God has to be, uh, we have to be at a place of brokenness before God can ever use us. Well, I don't mind one broken leg, God, but two of them, come on, man. If I'm just being honest. But it ought to drive us to being people of prayer. Here's the other thing that we see in verses 10 through 12. Discouragement is understandable. I cannot stand people that say to other Christians, oh, you ought never be discouraged. Really? Like Jesus Himself was discouraged. Like in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was pretty discouraged. Because He said to God, to His Father, hey, if there's any other way to take this trouble from me, please do so. That's discouragement. You look throughout the Bible, the men, the godly men that God has set before us as examples were discouraged. We we see Elijah, he got done and he wanted to kill himself. Jonah said to God at the bottom of the sea, hey just let the seaweed wrap around my neck and choke me out because I don't want to go back up. We see Moses trying to flee in his discouragement over and over and over. David was discouraged. And so, as a believer, you will be discouraged, and it's understandable. That's what happens here in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. A few things that we see. And this may be true for you. We must realize the extent of the discouragement. Like Nehemiah and the people of Nehemiah's day, the the Jews, were pretty discouraged. How come? Their enemies had totally surrounded them. Now, you see that in, in the verse. It says there's Sambayat, there's Tobiah, there's the Arabs and the um, Ashadites. So the Ashadites were from the west. They were coming in from the west. Uh, the, Tobiah and his army was coming from the east. S- Sam, Sambali was coming from the north and the Arabs were coming from the south. So everywhere they looked, they saw nothing but enemies waiting and ready to attack them remember what it says they plotted together they it wasn't like they had an, an escape plan anywhere they turned to run and flee from the discouragement from the attacks they were going to get slaughtered the next thing that we see and this may be true for you uh, for the sake of time I'm skipping some The workers were exhausted. I don't know about you, but for me, discouragement comes most when I'm exhausted. Are you exhausted this morning? Are you exhausted this morning? Here's what Raymond Brown says about this. He says, it's always easier to begin a work for God than to continue it perseverance is a rich and rare quality especially when we feel physically tired and spent maybe that's you this morning maybe you are just discouraged this morning and the discouragement is coming out of straight up exhaustion here's these men and women that had been building on this wall for weeks and weeks and weeks and they they didn't have forklifts they had to do it all by hand so yeah they're pretty exhausted And so for us, maybe it's not physical exhaustion this morning. Maybe it's just emotional and spiritual exhaustion this morning. Like you're like, I just can't go on anymore. I just need a break. Give me a break. God has placed you and put you in a place to work, and now you're just totally exhausted. The other place that discouragement has come is when we begin to look at the immensity of the work remember, here's these men, they've been, men and women, they've been working on this wall for four weeks, and at this point in time, it's only about waist high. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm trying to protect something, I'm going to build it a little higher than waist high. And so here's these men and women, they look at what's happening, and they get exhausted, and it says in in verse uh, 10, Judas says the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. They can't even lift another rock is basically what he's saying. And they are looking at the enormity of the work that's still got to be completed. And they get discouraged. And so for you and I, we can look and we can look at our lost world. We can look at the the two or three uh, thousand homes that are within five miles of this church. And the majority of those don't go to church. It's not like they go once a week. They don't go at all. That can be pretty discouraging. The overwhelming task that God would give us as a church to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to every man, woman, and child can be pretty exhausting. And the other part is the results aren't uh, in our favor. It's not like people are just coming to know Christ hand over fist. So it can be a huge task in front of us. The next thing that we see is the aggressive nature of the opponents, right? And we see that when it says that the people not only there at the wall begin to fear, but the people then begin to fear, hey, they're, they're getting close to our families. So now it's not only the wall that we have to worry about, now we've got to worry about our families. They become more and more aggressive in nature. Satan is so like that. If he can't get to us, he's going to go after our families. And so here's how we combat the discouragement. Verses 13 through 20. And this is what we must do. Unity is essential to overcoming this discouragement. We see that. What does Nehemiah do in verse 13? It says he stationed the people by their clans. He mobilized them. He put them in groups. That's the reason that Sunday school is so important for us. Sunday school isn't just because we want this hour to come and teach from a book. Sunday nights, discipleship training, isn't just so we can come and watch a video. Discipleship training, Sunday school for us, is a way to take the mass people and break them up into bite-sized pieces so that we can do what we want to do called community, to get to know people, to get to know the pain that we're in, to get to know that the discouragement is. And, and so if the only thing that you do is come here on a Sunday morning at 10, 15, this isn't enough for you. You must get into community. You, unity is so important to the mission of God. We saw that in chapter three, that all over the wall that Nehemiah had taken sex of people and put it on certain sections of the wall. He didn't say, "Ali, ali oxen- free, go wherever you want." He said, "No, this clan will be here, this clan will be here. This clan will be here. There has to be uh, unity in the masses. There has to be community in the masses. We must know one another. We must know our struggles deeply. As a guy that's been through recovery, that goes to tons of secular meetings, the thing that I found most beneficial to an AA meeting was community. I went to AA and thought, man, this is what's lacking in the church. A group of men and a group of women really sharing their struggles, really sharing their pain. And what broke my heart is they don't have the solution that we have. The solution to the problem is Christ and Christ alone through unity. Not some goofy higher power that's a tree. Just being honest. And so for me, I went to AA and thought, hey man, that is unity. That must be in the church if we're ever going to accomplish the mission of God. And so if you're here this morning, all you do is come here at ten fifteen. I plead with you, please get to Sunday school. Come to discipleship training. Please. The next thing that he sees, we see in verse 14, he considered his options. He looked around. You must consider your options. It's not just Sunday morning at 10.15. The, the third thing we see is this, that he shared his faith. Are we sharing our faith? Are we sharing our stories with one another? Who really knows you? Who knows your faith? Who knows you inside and out? That's what Nehemiah is talking about here. Nehemiah held nothing back from the people. He was open and honest to his core about what he saw and what he thought was. That's what takes us to the last one. He then announced his plan. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fights for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. You see, when we come together as a community, we begin to share our faith with one another and we begin to point back to God. God gets the glory, not you, not me. You see, we must come together as a community of believers to be encouraged to hear all that God is doing because if we remain in isolation, if I'm all to myself on an island, I don't hear the wonderful works that God is doing, then I'll miss it just like last Sunday at at, uh, lunch. I was sitting with a couple, with Rob and Reed, and they began to share their story with me, and I left totally encouraged by what they said, their honesty to the core, but they came back around to share how God had redeemed that. I need to hear those stories for my own life, not because I'm a pastor, because I'm a person that struggles with discouragement. And if if we're honest, all of us in the room struggle with discouragement and we need other people that we can look and say, oh man, God had worked in such a powerful way in their life and removed them from the discouragement because there's going to be a moment they're going to be discouraged again and then I get to share what God did for me, for them. That is the purpose and the plan of God in Nehemiah chapter 4. I promise you this, I promise you this. The discouragement is coming, church. You're either about to go into it, you're either in it now, or you just came out of it and you're about to go back into it. I'm just being honest. And we need people, men and women in our lives, that can tell us the truth about who God is. Because when I'm discouraged, I cannot see the truth of God. I'm blinded to it. And I need people to speak into my life to say, man, it's not always going to be this way. And here's how I know. And here's what God did. And here's how I'm going to walk with you through it. Okay. Okay. Because then in myself, I promise this. The majority of times I want to quit. I just want to quit. It's too much. I just want to give up. I don't see the hope. I'm speaking for me, honestly, from this pulpit. That's me in my own daily journal with the Lord. Like if you took my journal and you read it, you'd be horrified to think, man, that's our pastor. Yes, that's your pastor. I struggle with discouragement. But what I don't struggle with is living in communion with other people to help pull me out of the discouragement. Because I lived that way too long. And I saw what that did in my life and the havoc it wrecked in my life. The second thing is this, the, the last thing, is sacrifice is inescapable if we're going to be on mission with God in our discouragement. We see that in verses 21 and 23. It says that Nehemiah and the people of God worked from sunup to sundown. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever worked in the heat, that is exhausting work. And here it is, Nehemiah saying, hey, if you're going to be on mission with God, even in your discouragement, you're going to have to get up and you're going to have to continue to work. You cannot escape from, from being, to, to living a sacrificial life. We must live sacrificially. It must start the way it started here in Nehemiah. It must start with us as the leaders. It must start with me. It must start with the deacons. We must live lives that set the example that we will live sacrificial lives. The other thing we can turn to Luke chapter 14 is this. Luke 14, 25 through 33 says this. We must count the cost. To be on mission with God is going to cost us something. Let me read from Luke chapter 14. It says, a great crowd accompanying him, And he turned and said to them, the crowd, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you desires to build a tower and does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation, he is not able to finish. All those who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able, with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him, with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. The last one, so therefore, if anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, to follow Christ and to be on mission with God is going to count something to us. What Jesus says is going to count everything. You're going to lose everything to follow him. Is it worth it? And here's how Nehemiah ends it. The only way that we'll be able to say it's worth it. The only way that we'll be able to understand conflict. The only way that we'll go to God in prayer. The only way that we'll continue on in our discouragement. The only way that we'll be unified is to understand who God is. Who God is. God is invincible. This is what A.W. Tozer says. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say that one more time. Whatever comes into your mind, this very moment when you think about God is the most important thing about us or to us. And so remembering who God is gives us the strength to continue on in our discouragement. And here's seven things that we see who God is, and the list is exhaustive. We just see these seven things in Nehemiah chapter four alone. The first thing it says this: he is unique to us. Verses four and nine says this, he is our God. The second thing is this, he is so attentive. We see that in verse nine, that they turned to God and prayed and God heard their prayer unlike other gods who have no ears and have no eyes and cannot understand, when we go to God in prayer, He is very attuned and attentive to us. The third thing we see is that He is righteous. The fourth thing that we see is He's powerful. We see that in verse 14. He's a great God, it says. The next thing that we see is He's an awesome God. He's a holy God in verse 14. The sixth thing that we see, He is a a sovereign God. The God of sovereignty, Frustrated the plans of the enemy, he's a sovereign God, and the last thing and the most important thing for us is this in verse uh, twenty. It's what John read. It's what John sang about all morning. That we do have a God that fights for us. Right in his moment of despair, in the the Jewish people's moment of despair, they turn to God. They pray to God, and the renewed passion. To continue to work because it's they do get it. They are feeble. They cannot do it on their own. But they believe that there's a God that He they say that God will fight for us. If you're here this morning and you're in a place of discouragement this morning, the promise is this: you have a God that fights for you this very moment. This very moment, the God of the universe of all creation, of all sovereignty is in it with you this very moment and He is fighting with you and for you to accomplish His purpose in your life. And so if you're discouraged, I just want to say that one more time. If you are discouraged this morning, you have a God that fights for you and fights with us. You are not alone. You are not alone this morning. We have a God that fights for us. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, You are an amazing God that's doing amazing things. And I don't know, God, only You know where everyone sits this morning. But God, as a gift that You've given to me, I sense there is discouragement in this room this morning, God. I sense that there's people overwhelmed this morning, God. I sense that there's people in the moment, this moment, are in the midst of conflict this morning, God. And I beg you, Holy Spirit, that you, as you promised, you would be the great comforter, that you would come and bring comfort in that moment. In this moment, God, you will reveal yourself to these people, to us, God, to myself, that you are my God, that you are attentive to me that You are righteous, that You are powerful, that You are holy, that You're sovereign, and You're ever fighting for us. You never fail, God. God, I pray if there's anyone in the room this morning that does not know You, does not know all these attributes about You in a personal way, that God, this morning, through Your Holy Spirit, You would draw them to Yourself. God, I pray for us as a church that just seven days from now you're asking us to pick up some stones to lay some water to begin to do a great work that you've given to us called VBS. God, I pray for us as a church. I pray for us at VBS God, that you would use that not not for our community first and foremost Not for the children that were come, first and foremost. But God, that You would use VBS for us as a church to see Your greatness, to see Your goodness, to see Your power. God, that You would use VBS to ignite a flame in us. That You would use VBS to bring us more into unity, God. And then out of that, God, You would use us to impact this community. God, lead us, guide us, give us great hope and courage this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you're here this